Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Today, we get a chance to sit down with, at, at a very safe social distance, with Taku Harara, the founder of Ptix. And we'll talk about how this particular event planning and booking company is not only surviving, but thriving during this COVID crisis. And hey, this is the very first Disrupting Japan episode I've released where I've interviewed someone over video conference. I've recorded a few interviews this way before, but I've always found something lacking. Something impersonal and, and not fully connected when you're talking to an image on the screen rather than a person in the same room. But this time was different. Maybe because Taku and I are old friends, or maybe just because we all, myself included, are getting more used to living our lives online. So, we'll be doing more interviews this way, at least until things return to the way they were in, in the before times. This is actually the second time we've had Taku on the show, but this is all new information, and I strongly recommend you go and listen to the other interview as well. It's a great discussion about the things no one ever tells you when you first start your startup. I'll, I'll have a link to that episode up at the site. But today, we're going to talk about how to build and, and expand your customer base during lockdown some things you should know about fundraising right now, and, and what the hell is wrong with Japanese B2B SaaS companies. But you know, Taku tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Taku Harada of Ptix, uh, the event ticketing and promotion service. And thanks for sitting down with me. It's great to be back, I guess. We, we, we talked uh, several years ago. It's nice to see you again. Likewise. And we're, we're being very appropriately socially distant here. Very You much. being in New York. And yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, you were one of my very first guests on the show. And that was, man, almost six years ago now. Was it six years ago? Yeah. Five and a half, six years. Times change. What was it? 2013 or so. I'm curious to find out what I had said back then and see <laughs> matches up with what I'm thinking right now. But Yeah, that's right. We we finished off a bottle of wine at the old engine yard office in Tokyo. Yeah, in Ebisu, right? Yeah. You know, that it was a really great interview. And um we're not gonna cover the same ground again today. Although, I mean, you, you talked about some great stuff in terms of like founder motivation and and more reasonable expectations for this journey that would have been maybe a year and a half or maybe even close to two years uh after we started ptix i hope i'm not going to contradict myself uh today too much but let's see how well, it goes. well no that's actually what i'm what i'm well i'm not hoping you're going to contradict yourself but i i think this is like this really awesome chance to kind of check in and see how the predictions and strategies played out and like where you had to pivot right you know, because I, I don't know, there's this big myth of, of like entrepreneurship being this steady journey from point A to point B. And it's it's right. nothing like that. No, no, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of ups and downs and 
uh, it's uphill a lot and you you have to go downhill and just go left and right and somehow <laughs> when you look back okay maybe you're at a higher place than you were before um it's, it's never a linear straight line as you know yeah well actually let's jump right into it and i mean the biggest thing that that's coming to mind here is that as a startup focused on event planning i mean covid must have really had quite an impact on your business this was, as it was for most people, I'm sure, uh, totally unexpected. Boom, everything hit. I would say, what was it late March? I, I remember specifically when the Tokyo Marathon was canceled uh, towards the second half of March. That was when everything hit us. Uh, all the events that were on our platform, they started to get canceled and we had to do all the refunds and you know uh, everything just turned upside down. And then the the second tsunami, so to speak, was um, the first week of April when Japan uh, declared its national emergency. And that was just our world totally turned upside down. And uh, yeah. So how, how does a company that, that's just built around these live events, uh, how, do you, how do you pivot? How do you adapt to something like that? It, it felt like, um, let's see, let's see, maybe a week of uh, total panic not knowing what to do <laughs> and then several days of sort of a, a very low point which was just being depressed and wondering what you know what the hell we're supposed to do uh but then gradually picking ourselves up and just thinking about where the market would go thankfully the ma the majority of ptix events on ptix they're not the sort of the large scale, um, you know, sports or music and entertainment. Um, the, the majority of our events were the long tail community meetups and whatnot. So we, we did see that it, it would be relatively easier uh, for these kinds of events to go online. Uh, we, we saw an opportunity there. We figured out that uh, what we could do is sort of, you know, tweak the platform a bit, but really a lot of, um, communication to our customers, uh, communicating mm -hmm. to them that, okay, this is how you can have your community survive by taking things online. So, so, so were you like, just like proactively reaching out to your customers and saying, okay, now it's time to move everything online and here's how you do it. Yeah. One. So, you know, people were just canceling their offline events. We took the stance of being very proactive in, in supporting those efforts and, you know, communicating to our customers how to cancel your events, how to do their refunds. We figured that, okay, the, the very least we can do is sort of try to build trust uh, with our customers. So, so that was that phase. And then once we figured out the, the online strategy, uh, I was proactively going out there, talking to our customers, this is how you should bring your, your, your events online. Um, we, we launched a, an online event series by ourselves, just, you know, as a showcase, so to speak. And this, Thankfully, has thousands of viewers and listeners uh, every week. Um, just being positioning Ptix as your go-to platform for your online events, and uh, very quickly, all these events started to sort of flood our platform during April. Yeah, we're in a very, very good place right now. So everyone, everyone adapted pretty quickly then. Uh, yeah. So what what makes a good online event? I mean, I'm I'm sort of like old school and like even even all right, you and I are doing this online now, but it's it's not the same as as sitting across the table and drinking wine together. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think folks are still trying to figure everything out. Not, you know, not everything is perfect. There are a lot of technical glitches along the way, but because it's such a transitionary period, I, I think the participants are always, they tend to be a little lenient, you know, okay, maybe because of um, connectivity issues, uh, the, the event might go down for a couple of minutes or so, but it's not like, you know, everybody's pissed off and just yelling and screaming at the organizer. People are a little more receptive and patient with things. Uh, in terms of format, uh, Zoom, uh, the, the typical event that we see on a platform is like you know, using Zoom speakers, just talking about you know the topic of their choice among, within their communities. And, and so that communication among the participants and the organizers, that how to bring that online and how to bring that sense of connectivity into the event is it continues to be a challenge but there are various tools uh, out there and I'm re we're really amazed with how creative people are in, in trying to replicate the the experience online so are, are people willing to to pay to attend online events or is this they they are so pre-covid i would say maybe 60 70 percent of our events were paid events Typically, fifty dollars or four thousand yeah. to five thousand yen would be the uh, ticket price for those paid events. In the post-COVID world, not post, but you know, during this COVID world, maybe only thirty percent of the events that we have are paid events. Oh, but that's still pretty high. It's still all pretty things, high. All things considered, yeah. Yeah, and the average ticket price uh, this is much lower than the the pre-COVID days. Maybe even half, say two thousand, three thousand yen. Maybe not even two thousand. That is the average ticket price. So we have to make it up in volume, obviously, and the volume is catching up, thankfully. Uh, huh. But yes, people are willing to pay, and that mix continues to go up. So it's about 30% today. I think we're going to see that mix go higher over the coming days. All right. Yeah, well, that makes sense as everyone kind of figures out the new medium. Yeah. So as we, well, both New York and Tokyo, I mean, as we come out of this COVID crisis and things get back to the way they were, you know, in the before times. Do you think that things will be like permanently changed? Is there some things that will people keep doing online? I think that some things will be permanent. I think a lot of people are realizing that some of the these changes, it, it opened up some new opportunities for many people. With, with the online events, there being no physical restrictions, obviously, what we've seen is like pre-COVID, maybe you know an event series that had 50 participants at most, you add a zero to that, literally, because of the lack of physical restrictions. So that is a great thing for that community. Um, we, we think that, and who knows when this thing will end. It might take a year or so, or maybe more, for things to go sure. back to you know, total normalcy. Uh, maybe there's a hybrid model in the end. Think of it as like a TV program. You got the studio, some people in the audience, but most people participating or viewing it through the television or online. So that sort of setup is what we, I think, will see even when well, that would be normal. Yeah, that would be. I haven't really thought about that, but it, it would be. It, it is forcing people to, if you will, kind of experiment with a new medium and and yeah. see what value can be delivered in this format. Mm -hmm. In a very odd way, many of our customers are embracing this change because it has opened doors to new possibilities and opportunities, and a lot of it is good. 
again, that hybrid model where you would have that, the, the, inter the physical interaction at the event, but maybe 10 times the, the number of people in the studio or at the, the venue participating through online means, having that huge chunk uh, of participants would obviously be much better for that community over the long yeah. run. Yeah, it scales. Yeah, the scalability is, is amazing. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of participants, you know, I, I would say it used to be maybe 60, 70% of our events were pretty much in the Tokyo metropolitan area or the Kanto region, a pretty large chunk in the Osaka Kansai region. But now it's really spread out um, throughout huh. Japan and, and you know, other nation, countries as well. Well, that's true. It does, it does eliminate the whole geographic problems. You can have an event wherever you are and people from all over the world can attend. Yeah, I think it's um, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. Okay, let let's talk about something besides COVID. That's that's all I, everyone's talking about. But <laughs> I, I want to talk about like what really has happened with you and with PTIX over the last five six years. So last time we talked, you were talking about how you'd had to kind of bootstrap things up. Your original marketing channels were like physically going to events and to clubs and building up this kind of community of, of personal connections. Um, and at that time we were talking about display ads and SEM and what was the next step for marketing and, and what turned out to be the next step for marketing. It was, uh, I would have to say, unfortunately a bit, maybe <laughs> it, it, it has pretty much been, uh, the same game, the continuation of what we were doing back then. We still don't spend any marketing dollars uh, for SEM or display ads or anything. I, I would even say that um, that strategy that, that I talked about back in the day of participants bringing in more participants, that has only worked much better to, at, a, at a much higher magnitude. All right, so it's been entirely network effect. Entirely network effect. Um, more organizers to bring in more organizers, more participants bring in more participants and communities, and that part has been amazing. You know, on PTX, if you buy a ticket to an event, you're asked asked to download our app, where you'll find more events. Once you'll you'll you'll, you'll find your ticket, but you'll you'll find a bunch of other events as well. We have what maybe 30 to 40,000 downloads of our app every month, and we don't spend a single cent in, in getting <laughs> those downloads. So that part has worked quite well. Um, and again, who's to say what we'll be doing in a year or two? Now, that's interesting because uh, the, the the online event planning and that networking, it's it's has been and continues to be an incredibly competitive space. Right. And with the reliance on network effects, it would seem to be more likely that a that the whole industry would consolidate around like a few major players right. um is that happening i think i want to point out the uh the different business model that we've aspired to build over time traditional ticketing company their business is you know taking fees free for each ticket sale although we do that and i think i talked about this before our goal has been to you know, let's say you, you publish an event on PTX, you, you want more attendees into your event. So we're, we're providing sort of, you know, access into our customer database, which is about 5 million right now, uh, to get more attendees into your community and events. So that's where we make some money, a lot of money actually these days. And also 
connecting third parties such as corporate sponsors or venues and with the event communities and we were that revenue is growing as well so we're, we're slowly coming to a point where we don't really care about ticketing fees anymore is that significantly different than the the brands who shall not be named their business model it seems like everyone's kind of at least saying the same thing in, in terms of the value add they bring to the the organizers. But ticketing companies aren't saying that, right? Your traditional, at least in Japan, their goal is to bring in more people into the convenience stores, right? Mm. That's it. And uh, they'll take a cut of each transaction. But there's no aspect of discoverability, you know, discovering more events or communities, connecting corporate sponsors. That's not their business. That's they haven't built anything there. We have for the past eight, nine years, and that is really coming to fruition. So the network effect, you know, the more our database grows, the more attendees that each event or organizer can get. And is that something, I mean, you, you were touching on it just briefly, but do you think you'll ever be at a point where you could, for example, completely do away with ticketing charges and, and focus solely on the, the tools and, and helping organizers bring in more people? I think we'll definitely come to a point, and I, I'm not going to predict when, where we won't uh, care about making margins off the ticketing fees. I, you know, we'll have to cover our costs, and, you know, obviously in terms of processing and whatnot. But we are... Actually, today, at, at the point where we don't care, you can be ticketing your event uh, at a competitor of ours, let's say Eventbrite or something like that. We will, uh, if you want, we, we will feature your event on our apps. You know, your, your event will be exposed in our search results and whatnot. But once the customer hits get the Get Ticket button, it'll jump to a comp- you know Eventbrite or third-party ticketing site. We won't care. But we will provide you with the opportunity to for exposure. So we, we are at that stage right now. Okay, so really focusing on adding value to the the planners and the organizers. Right, and and their their biggest concern is getting more attendees and filling their seats. Ironically, in the COVID world, no, there 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 are no limitations in terms of seats, but right. Uh, but you know, nonetheless, they want more people to attend their events. So. So you're based in New York, but you still have a pretty big customer base in Japan and in other parts of Asia as well. Right. What, what, what does that look like percentage-wise? Japan has been explosive for us, especially well, last year. What used to be, when we were talking, I think, or around 2015, 2016 or so at least, um, it was about 60, 60 to 70% Japan, the rest being the rest of the world. Right now, Japan is exploding. Over 80% is Japan. Well, what's driving that? I think uh, the brand perception, for lack of a better term, that network, again, the network effect, as we grow and grow, it just gets better and better. So just riding that wave in Japan right now, we do believe that things outside of Japan will follow that same path eventually. It's a timing issue. But today, about 80% of business in Japan right now. Now, we're a highly distributed team worldwide. We've got people in New York City, obviously, uh, even within New York, upstate New York. And we got people in Manila, Singapore, Malaysia, all over the place. So it doesn't matter where we are, really. All right. Well, that's what the next thing I was going to ask is, like, with such a big customer base in Japan, if you were considering 
moving back to Japan after having moved to New York? Yeah, well, I've been, uh, not now, but I, I've been spending considerable amount of time in, in Tokyo and Singapore and whatnot. Um, I'd say maybe pre-COVID, you know, half of my time was spent in Tokyo. But, you know, things are changing. Who, who knows? It, it literally doesn't matter today, <laughs> you know, as long as I can take the, uh, the time zone difference. It doesn't matter for any of us within the company. Okay. Another thing that we were both talking about last time, and it's almost unfortunately perfect time to revisit it. You were talking about how too many startups were just like burning through huge amounts of cash uh, right. to acquire new customers. And you, you mm-hmm. thought, you predicted that would come back to haunt most of them. Mm-hmm. Wasn't I right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think with COVID, <laughs> this is exactly what we're seeing. Uh, so you guys are running pretty lean pre-COVID, right? I mean, or did you have to make big adjustments when... Uh, we, we, were, we weren't profitable last time I was talking. Um, we, no, no. Uh, for a fact that we've raised about $50 million over time. We are profitable, actually. We became profitable last year for the full year, 2019. Uh, we've kept it lean. We're only about 40-plus people worldwide, which is I think is amazing. But yes, uh, COVID hit us. We've, we struggled parts of March, especially April. But thankfully, things are, you know, we are at the break-even level again. Fingers crossed, but it doesn't seem like we're going to have to raise again. Um, do you want to raise again? Is it something you, you think you might do in the future, or are you on a pretty pretty solid path to where you want to go now? I would say we're pretty solid path, and I'll explain a little why. But also, also say never, say never, right? So yeah. who knows? Some opportunities might arise, some new strategies might you know, come into play. But you know, pretty much our fixed cost has been sort of flat, right, over over the years. So while our gross profits have been going up and up and up, and the the two lines intersected last year, and so theoretically, beyond that, it's all beautiful profit beyond that, and that's you know, we're on the verge of, you know, being hugely profitable going forward. So hopefully we can just, uh, again, this is probably the the, the Amazon DNA in in all of us, you know, as you might recall, a a large number of our management team is from Amazon. So, but the idea is to generate profits, but reinvest those profits wherever appropriate back into the business for further growth. That's what we aspire to do. What? last round was series d you know i I, i'm just not a pretty i'm not a big fan of doing e e f g and beyond so (laughs) well i mean if you don't need it i mean don't don't take it if you don't need it right yeah that's pretty much been our philosophy from day one and um i am really thankful that we became profitable uh, and this covid thing has hit us we were not in the middle of a raise we were not in the you know, some startups, I'm sure, you know, their unit economics might be terrible. You know, they need that cash, but I'm sure they're trying to figure out what to do. I'm just like, thank God I'm not out there um, trying to raise at this terrible timing. So you started p in 2011, right? 2011, right. Yeah. And you moved to New York, like, almost right away. And, and last hmm. time we talked... And a few other times we've talked, you've been very kind of adamant that, no, no, Ptex is is not a Japanese company, legally, culturally, right. ambition-wise, it's an American company. 
I wouldn't say it American, but international. No? Yep. International? International. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm curious. So in the almost nine years since you, you made that decision, have you seen Japanese startups change over those years? I mean, is, do you see the culture getting better? Is it becoming more... Uh, is it becoming less Japanese and more international? That's a tough question. Uh, I think I, I I think we see more Japanese startup having international employees. That's definitely something that I see. You have your engineers who would they're sick of San Francisco. They want they love Japan. They get an engineering job at a Japanese startup. I, I you know I think we see a, a growing. I think we do see a lot of that, but the but the founders themselves, I mean, the, the attitude and the ambition that we were talking about last time, that, that core of... I think, unfortunately, that has sort of been tempered a bit compared to when we were... I, you know, I remember 2011, 12, 13, around that period, you know, there were a growing um, number of startups back then, Japanese entrepreneurs with global ambitions or international ambitions. I, I, obviously, I don't have the, the, the hard numbers in front of me, but I don't see... I, I, I'm sure it has a lot to do with, you know, sort of the, the SaaS segment really you know, presenting itself with a huge opportunity, So especially in a very idiosyncratic, you know, corporate environment such as Japan. These SaaS companies have had to build solutions very specific to Japan, which doesn't have, you know, international outreach. But, but I mean, hard numbers aside and, and business rationale aside, I mean, in the founders you speak to, in, in the new founders you're seeing, it almost sounds like you're saying the attitude might have gotten a little worse, that people are a little less ambitious. Is that is that true? Yeah, I don't know if it's worse. I think the opportunity... The old economy of Japan changing and trying to transform itself, and this has been accelerated with with COVID. But that opportunity is so large that I, I think that a lot of startups is really just trying to focus on that opportunity for now, at least. Uh, they they tend to be B two B SaaS type of services, but you know I, I think Japan again, you know this. Is, Japan is a very weird market where it's, yeah. it's it's very closed, but it's it's a very large closed market so uh, just focusing on that is is a pretty large opportunity for what well, is and, and I, I think part of it though is I mean Japanese VCS love to invest in b2b SaaS companies because they're simple to measure you know within six months whether you've made a good investment or not right um, they're very spreadsheet friendly yeah I wish I was a SaaS company someday <laughs> but <laughs> Well, do you think COVID, so you're saying like before, I, I mean, it is true in technological disruption or even innovation will drive, it's what opens up a lot of these business opportunities, whether it's smartphones or the internet the first time or, or, or desktop computers. Right. Do you think that COVID and, and Japanese society being forced, being dragged, kicking and screaming into working from home? could kickstart a new generation a new i hope so yeah it varies among among segments but you know maybe a little more a consumer facing service might have international possibilities more than ever i'm not complaining but so so much of the 
the startup community has been focusing on B2B SaaS type of businesses. And the, you know, for, for that opportunity, I don't, it seems like because these platforms need to be very Japan specific, I don't see a lot of possibility of those going overseas. I think you're right on that. And I think that's really a, a, a supply and demand. It, but I mean, the demand coming from the VCs, like there's investment money available and those startups get funded. And there's a lot of really kind of odd B2B SaaS companies in Japan. <laughs> yeah, don't get me started on that. But no, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> some of the stuff you'll see in the back of taxis, you'll kind of go, really? <laughs> you know, okay. Um, but, the, but the very fact that the, the, a lot of these startups have the money to pay for those taxi yeah, exactly. ads is amazing, right? It, it speaks to itself. And so I'm just pointing out whether or not I like it personally, that is the reality. And it's, I understand it's a huge economic opportunity for, for investors and entrepreneurs. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I really... Like I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a consumer-oriented guy. I have always... Well, you are, but you're also one of the few Japanese founders I know that just said, we're going global from the start and, and actually did it. I mean, you know, we're we're it's not it's not easy. We're struggling in many ways, but it, the aspiration is definitely still there, or if not bigger, there must be a growing number of entrepreneurs out of Japan that go in that direction. Yeah, I mean, attacking a global market means much faster adoption. It'll be well, actually, even the VC attention. Did did you raise mostly from Japanese VCs or foreign VCs? Uh, it was a mix, uh, maybe 50% Japanese and the rest being overseas. Again, as we've both alluded to, I think most Japanese VCs right now, I don't think global or international is a priority for them right now because this no. SaaS opportunity is so huge right in front of their eyes and they just want these startups to focus on Japan first. Yeah, that's the blessing and the curse of the Japanese economy being so big, you know? Yeah. I totally agree. It's it's sort of unfortunately the same thing all, all over again, right? You had the first generation or second generation of startups because the domestic market is so large, they're able to grow very quickly in Japan. And by the time they're too big, you know, it's sort of too late to go overseas, right? Yeah, and there's a lot of pressure from the, the investors to, to not go overseas because it's risky and it takes a lot of capital. And they're like, no, no, just, just IPO. And, and like, you'll do all that risky stuff later. It's like, wait, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, it's just a question of you as the entrepreneur, you know, what's going to drive you, right? And, and it becomes philosophical or a motivational topic. And that's, you know, it, it, it's a very tough question. Um, but in the end, the entrepreneur will bleep this out, but um, do whatever the f*** you want, right? That's, that's <laughs> the idea, right? Well... Taco, before I let you go, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. And that is, if I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the education system, the people's attitudes towards risk, the legal system, anything at all to make it better for startups and innovation in Japan, what would you change? I wish the big companies wouldn't dictate the direction of, of, of the Japanese startup. I hope I wish that the Japanese startup could sort of not ignore, but I, I hope they're going to be in a position where prioritizing the, the demands and needs of the big old corporate world of Japan 
is not a priority for them, and they can just look elsewhere. No, that's a really interesting topic. So, so do you mean in terms of the large company dominance of distribution channels and the market and mindshare, or do you mean like large companies capture of government policy and licensing, or, or why do you think it is that these startups have to please the big companies so much? Large Japanese companies, they have tons of cash, right? If you look at uh, their balance sheets, this is just amazing, you know, the amount of cash that they hold. And unfortunately for, for startups, that, that is their first customer. And unless you build a very consumer-facing service such as ours, your, your business is going to be dictated by whatever the needs that these big clients want. And they're very demanding. They want customization all the time. Oh, God, yes. Uh, the typical <laughs> demand is, so can you white label your service for us? You know, uh, We've said no to these demands throughout the years. Never gave in, and which has enabled us to uh, build a more scalable uh, platform and approach to things. But I think especially in the B2B world, because you need that revenue for the big corporate client, you're doing a lot of customization all the time, which sort of you know eats away from your resources and you know it's sort of well yeah it's it's easy to lose track of your own vision if you're if you're constantly customizing it and getting all the details for every client right and so you know it, it is a choice I'm not saying it's right or wrong I'm just I'm just very gently pointing out that maybe if you if you have such a short term view of things and you know you're talking to the I, I definitely there. I mean, everything you customize, you're incurring a debt, a technical debt that you're going to have to support that. And, mm-hmm. and I've seen a couple of startups that that was undoubtedly the reason they eventually went out of business. They just couldn't support that. I think we know a few, right? Or, yeah. Uh, but one of the things that I've been most excited about, one of the developments I've been most excited about over the last 10 years has been like during the dot-com era. All the startups were basically selling to big companies. Right. That was the only option. But but I think these days we're seeing more startups selling to other startups. Startups and SMB. So I like I tend to like personally the what's a good example? Like a smart HR. I think they're great. The core business, the clientele that they've been able to acquire is like the SMBs, the the, the startups and the the smaller businesses out there, which. I'm sure there's like very few customization requests going on and white labeling and all that. I think they're well positioned for a lot of scalability going forward. Those are the startups I really admire. The ones that are able to sort of say no to the short-term stuff but have this big vision in mind. And Well, there's an awful lot of SMBs in Japan. Yeah, it's a huge segment, right? I guess going back to your question, I, I, I wish and I hope... The, the old Japanese economy, typically being the Japanese conglomerates, I hope they don't dictate the direction of the startup community. Yeah, I, I know they want to. And I know like the, the, the politicians and the, the large company vision of startups is just, oh, we'll, we'll get lots of innovation and new, you know, new ideas, but no, no disruption of Japan. I, I appreciate their interest. I think they're great people, right? But corporations are weird creatures, right? And I say this because the Japanese corporate world has been very active in you know, investing in startups, either directly or you know, as LPs. And 
we've run into situations uh, because of sort of like that investor relation in the background, very strong demands on what we should do or what we should build for. I, I just don't think it's a healthy thing for, you know, we love the money, but please, all right, take a step back, let things unfold organically. Uh, don't don't be so demanding. Well, well, hopefully we'll be seeing a lot more of that. And, and I think we are seeing startups, like at least the fairly successful ones, kind of assert their uh, their independence that way. Yeah, yeah, that's that kind of backbone. You, typically, the these uh, services that have been able to target the the SMB or the individual as their main customer base, they they tend to have more more scalable possibilities. I think. Well, hopefully, we'll be seeing a lot more of that. Yeah. Well. Listen, Taka, I want to thank you so much for sitting down with me. No, thank you. Even though we're 10,000 miles apart, but sitting down with me. (laughs) And we'll have like a real glass of wine next time. Yeah, yeah. I I hope to have that glass of wine. And we're back. It's really interesting and, and important that so many people are willing to pay for online events. So much of the value of, of business events is tied up in what people cynically call networking. But networking is really just the chance to talk with other people who are like us. Most of the time, the speaker is just an excuse to have an event. People go for the connection and the community. And I I love the fact that PTIX's core strategy to get through this crisis is to be the company that helps their customers get through this crisis. You see, this, this is what startups are made for. During this crisis, there's been a lot of talk all over the world about how governments should help and support startups. And, and that's great. But... But startups are not some kind of weak little creatures that that need protection. Disruption, rapid change, and crisis is where startups shine. Startups can move faster than big firms. Startups are always the ones that figure it out first. It's what we're good at. It's where we thrive. So if any permanent and lasting good does come out of this pandemic you can be certain it will be the startups leading it. If you would like to talk more about online events, Taku and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 165 and and let's talk about it. If you leave a comment, I guarantee you that Taku or I or, or maybe both will respond. And hey, if you get the chance... Check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook, but but even better, if you like the show, tell people about it. Disrupting Japan is my labor of love. It's free forever, and we have no advertising budget. People hear about the podcast because listeners like you enjoy it, and they tell their friends about it. But most of all, thanks for listening, and thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups and innovation know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.